week at RUF that the book of Judges, Old Testament book of Judges, it's, it's a series of stories, of true stories, that were written to God's people with the intent of showing them God's grace and to therefore call them to faith and obedience. So with that in mind, let's look at this um, next chapter. We're in, we're in chapter 15. Round, we're, we're coming to the end here of the book of Judges as we continue to look at um, Samson. Here is uh, Judges chapter 15. I'll begin uh, in verse 1 and we'll go to uh, begin in chapter 16. After some days, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stack grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the, son of, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Edom. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up to us? Come up against us. And they said, we have come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. And they said to him, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that had caught fire and his back. His bonds melted off his hands, and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck a thousand men. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramoth-Lehi. And he was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned and he revived. And therefore the name of it was called in Hakore. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute 
and he went into her. This is God's word. Let me pray. We'll look at it together. Let's pray. Father, uh, we would ask that as we look at this passage, that you would fill us, that you would enrich us, you would nourish us. And we know that we have no hope of, of that happening apart from your Spirit's work. And so would you be gracious to us in this time and, and come and be our teacher. And that would be our prayer. We'd ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure if you heard, uh, but there was some pretty big breaking news that just came out this week. Uh, they're making Anchorman 2. <laughs> and uh, it was big news, very exciting for me, and it got me thinking about Ron Burgundy and uh, why, I love, why I love the first one so much. And I think what's so great about the Ron Burgundy character is how blatantly self-absorbed he is. I mean, he doesn't hide it. He doesn't try to hide it. He's just unashamedly self-absorbed. Here are a few of my favorite scenes. Uh, this is between Ron Burgundy, Will Ferrell, and Veronica Corningstone. <laughs> that just name is funny to me. Uh, they're at like the VCR TV thing, and she goes, uh, excuse me, and he goes, what are you doing? Uh, I need this machine so I can watch a tape for a story. I'm using the tape. I'm showing Jeffrey my Emmy tape. We are watching history. Uh, Mr. Burgundy, I'm a professional, and I would like to be able to do my job. Big deal. I am very professional. <laughs> Mr. Burgundy, you are acting like a baby. I'm not a baby. I'm a man. I'm an anchor man. You are not a man. You're a big, fat joke. I'm a man who discovered the wheel and built the Eiffel Tower out of metal and brawn. That's what kind of man I am. You're just a woman with a small brain, with a brain the size, a third the size of us. It's science. <laughs> and here's probably my favorite scene of the whole thing. He goes, you know, I think this is when they first meeting each other, and he goes, uh, I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. <laughs> really? People know me. Well, I'm very happy for you. I'm, I'm very important. I have many leather-bound books, and my apartment smells of rich mahogany. <laughs> I just love that. Uh, he's, uh, he's completely over-the-top self-absorbed. And while the rest of us you know, have sophisticated ways of hiding it, and we would never say things like this, at least I hope not, uh, the thing that makes him so funny is that he just is over-the-top self-absorbed. The reason I bring all this up is because we're getting ready to continue looking at Samson, who is the worst judge in the entire book of Judges. And he is the quintessential self-absorbed narcissist. And so by looking at someone who's just as overtly self-focused as Ron Burgundy, I think by looking at Samson, he's going to actually teach us about our own self-absorption. Be it if, if it's overt in you or if it's hidden in you, he's, he's going to teach us about it. And so what I want to do is I want to look at this passage and ask three questions. How do we know if we're self-absorbed? What's the worst thing for us if we're self-absorbed? And then how do we get rid of the self-absorption? So those are the three questions. How, how do we know if we're self-absorbed uh, self first? Secondly, what's the worst thing for us if we are self-absorbed? And then lastly, how do we get rid of it? First question, how do we know if we're self-absorbed? Okay, look at Samson again. I, I want to highlight three signs about him that, that are really sort of diagnostic tests that you can use on yourself 
to show you if you are indeed just like Samson and is just as self-absorbed and self-focused as he is. Here, here's the first sign that I want to highlight. He is unaware of other people. He's unaware of other people. If you were here last week, the story right before this that we looked at was, was the week of Samson's wedding. It's a week-long kind of ordeal. And on the last day of the wedding, he loses a bet and explodes in anger, goes off and kills 30 people, and then just storms off to his daddy's house. And uh, so here's what happens next. Let me, let me read the first verse out of this. Look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 15. It says, After some days, so some days after he storms away, at the time of, heat, of wheat, harvest, <laughs> wheat harvest, wheat, Samson <laughs> went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. And yes, that means what it sounds like. But her father would not allow him to go in. So apparently, it was just no big deal to Samson that he just completely ruined the wedding you know, a few days before. So picture this. Picture you're at a wedding. And uh, you're in the church. There's all the flowers, packed church. Here's the bride. Here's the groom. Every, you know, they're looking beautiful. And right before they exchange vows, the groom just loses it. And explodes in anger, starts knocking over the pews. He kills all of his groomsmen and storms out of the church. You know, people are freaking out. The bride is bawling. People are calling the cops. And a week later, the groom shows up to the father of the bride's house, like nothing happened, expecting sex. It's insane. And it's exactly what he does. He is completely oblivious to how other people may have felt about this event that he just completely ruined. He is totally unaware of other people. Here's the question. Are you aware of other people? Are you aware of other people's needs, of other people's feelings? Or do you even have eyes for other people? When someone's in a conversation with you, uh, do you feel the need to have the, to have the story all, always go back around to something that you've done? I mean, you know what that's like. You're in a conversation with someone, and someone's constantly just one-upping the story. You tell a story, but this person has done it better than you. Being completely oblivious how insulting that is to the person that just shared their story. Is that you? Can you make the, other, can you make the conversation be about them, or do you always have to be it about you? Are you aware of other people? Do you ask questions of other people? When you, when you sit down and have a conversation with someone, do, do you ask them questions or do you just speak and assume that they want to listen to what you have to say? Are you oblivious to how somebody else may feel? When, uh, when you're in a public place, do you talk really loudly on your cell phone, completely oblivious to how other people may be feeling around you. The only reason I bring that up is because I was writing this particular part of the sermon in Panera, and there was this couple basically screaming their conversation next to me. I'm like, I hate when people do that. Completely unaware of their surroundings. Is that you? Are you aware of other people? That's the first sign, the first diagnostic test you can use on yourself. If you are just as self-absorbed as Samson is. Here's the second one. Not only is he unaware of people, he uses people. Again, in verse 1 of chapter 15, he goes to his wife, ex-wife, whatever she is now, and expects to have sex with her. He just, he just, that's just the expectation. She exists for my pleasure. Bottom line, that's it. And then, as the story unfolds, he doesn't get what he wanted. And in the very next uh, chapter, verse 1, 16-1, he hires a prostitute and uh, uh, indulges himself. 
And what, this, what, we, what we see here is that he, is, um, he has no problem with using people. People are valuable to him only insofar as they are there to serve him. He uses other people, and if you use other people, you're just as self-absorbed as he is. So you have to ask yourself the question, do you arrange your relationships? Do you position yourself in relationships with certain people so that by virtue of association, you will be seen as cool or as popular or uh, as influential, as important? You're just using, getting around other people and using them for your own benefit. You know, if you're ever in a conversation with someone, uh, do you ever tear other people down in order just to make yourself, to build yourself up? You know, if you're in a conversation with someone and they may be talking highly about someone that they like and you have some inside information on the person that they like and so out of a deep sense of competition with this person, you feel the need to expose this other person and to share some information with this person so that they know they're not as great as they think they are. Let let me tell you what this person's really like. Or uh, do you ever use information to just gain a, gain a status with someone else, gain, gain affection with someone else? Do you ever name drop? Do, do you ever just use somebody's name, kind of drop it that you've, you've hung out with them, you know them? You're, you're just using someone else for your own selfish benefit. If you're messing around with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you're using them. You may think that you are loving them, you're respecting them, you're enjoying them. You're not. You're using them. If you're hooking up, if you're just doing random makeouts, which I know is a thing at college, you're using them. You're using people. And if you're using people, you're self-absorbed, just like Samson. Here's the third diagnostic test. He must get even. I mean, did you notice that? All throughout the story, the story hinges around these cycles of retaliation. I mean, Samson's denied having sex with this woman that he thought was his wife. And so in verses 4 and 5, he burns down the Philistines' farm. And when they hear that it was Samson that did that, they get angry. And then they go and burn and kill that woman and her father. And so when Samson hears about that, he then goes off and kills all of them. It's just this one thing after the other. As soon as he gets wounded, he retaliates. If he gets denied the very thing that he believes is his, you must pay. He has to get even over and over and over throughout this whole story. And the whole thing is just completely self-focused. Uh, you know, a thing, when I was in college, and I know this is uh, a reality here, uh, I was involved in a prank war. And I'm sure you have been involved in this, and you know this. You prank somebody, and then this person... Uh, feels the need to retaliate and actually up the ante and prank a little harder. And so this thing obviously escalates and get out of control. And one time in college, I was at the receiving end of the escalation. It ended with me. Because what happened with me was this group of girls that we had been pranking did the dumb and dumber thing on me and gave me a milkshake that was filled with x wax. <laughs> and... Um, Unbeknown to me, I drank the entire thing, and it destroyed me. Have y'all seen um, Have y'all seen Bridesmaids? One, one of the women One of the women in that movie describes it perfectly, where she says, "It feels like hot lava is pouring out of me." 
that's what happened. You know, um, they tell you they tell you in seminary never never bring bathroom humor into the pulpit. And I, this is not a pulpit, so I'm okay. Uh, but you know, as fun and as fine and as you know great as prank wars are, you really see in kind of a silly way that underneath it is really self-absorption. Even if it's in a silly way, it's like I will not be bested if you prank me. You will pay even harder. And, of course, that's, that's the thing that escalates. Now, if you translate that, which is fun and fine and enjoyable, if you translate that into the realm of real relationships, it's no longer fun, and it's no longer fun, and it's no longer enjoyable, because you, you ask yourself the question, okay, whenever you're hurt, do you feel the need to retaliate? Must they pay when they hurt you? And that, that can take many different forms. You can just give them the silent treatment, which is a form of making them pay for it. You can just uh, talk bad about them behind their backs with your group of friends. You can even just retaliate with something really mean and hurtful when they hurt you in that moment. Can you let stuff go or do you have to retaliate? Must you get even? Or if somebody criticizes you, brings something to you that's, that's, they have something that is hard that they have to share with you. Do you have your gun loaded with eight things that you could say against them if they bring it to you? Are you just cocked and loaded, ready to retaliate? Or can you actually hear it and receive it? Are you able to forgive people? Are you able to to forgive? Or do you live by the code, hurt me once, shame on you. Hurt me twice, shame on me. Is that the code you live by? Look, all three of these are are the diagnostic tests that you can use on yourself to determine whether or not you're self-absorbed. Do I... Am I aware of people? Do I use people? And must I get even? Now, if you're anything like me, you come out the other side of these tests not feeling too confident. Because, you know, I I take an honest look at myself and think, good grief, I am unbelievably self-absorbed. You know, when it comes to what we're going to eat for dinner, I want it to be all about me. When it comes to what we're going to watch on the TV or what movie we're going to watch, I want it to be all about me. When it comes to what what lane to get in in traffic, I want it to be all about me. When it comes to what lane to get in the grocery store, it's all about me. I want my wife to exist for me, my daughter to exist for me, my students to exist for me. I want the world to revolve around meeting my needs and getting my desires met. You probably wouldn't know that about me because it's much more, I'm, I'm not as overt as Ron Burgundy. Anna Sampson is much more sophisticated. I have very sophisticated ways of hiding it, of disguising it. And my guess is that's probably more like you too. Where underneath maybe a veneer of altruism is is a deeply selfish heart, a deeply self-absorbed, self-focused heart. So what happens in the story then? Well, uh, Samson's own people don't want anything to do with him. And so they go to him, and they capture him, and they tie him up, and they hand him over to the enemy, to the Philistines. And the Spirit of the Lord comes on him, and he busts out of the ropes, grabs a jawbone of a donkey, and just goes to town and opens a can and kills a thousand people. (laughs) Which sets up the second question for us tonight. What's the worst thing? that can happen to self-absorbed people like you and me? What is the worst thing that can happen? What's the worst thing that you can experience if you're self-absorbed? And I'll be briefer on this point. There's actually two. The two worst things that can happen for you 
are success and blessing. So the two worst things that can happen for you if you're self-absorbed. Let me show you where I get this. First, success. Look, look again at verse 14. There's where we find out that this, it's the spirit of the Lord that comes on Samson, which basically means God's spirit comes on him and he gets divine power in a unique way uh, so that he is delivered and he can be saved. So God comes upon him. He's able to bust out and uh, he ends up escaping and killing everybody. After he kills everybody, look at verse 16. Uh, Here's what he says. This is actually a a miniature little song because the word donkey and heap rhyme in the original language. This is kind of why it sounds a little poetic and clunky in your translation. One of the translations, uh, or one of the commentaries that I read about it, tried to translate it into the English with the rhyme so that it would connect with us a little bit more. And here's what they said. They said that Samson would have said something like, with the jawbone of an ass, I have killed them in mass. Whatever. But you get the basic idea. Here's what you have to notice. Is that this little song is all about him. I'm the man. I just killed everybody. I wiped them all out. No reference to God. No credit to God. All about him. And what do we see? We see an unbelievable military success. And yet, that success only reinforces his self-absorption. It only reinforces it. Success is one of the most dangerous things for self-absorbed people because you become more confident in yourself and you become less grateful to God. I mean, think about it like this. Let's, you know, imagine a corporate setting. Let's say your coworker is this cocky, self-reliant dude. And uh, he's completely self-absorbed, completely narcissistic. What would be the worst thing for him? Would he get promoted? Because if he gets promoted then what's he going to think? I worked for it, I earned this, and I'm better than everybody else who didn't get it. It would only reinforce the self-absorption. That's the first thing. Here's the second. Blessing. In verse 18, after you know this massive slaughter of a thousand people, he is, understandably, exhausted and dehydrated. And so for the first time yet, he cries out to God. By the way, he only addresses God twice. And the whole four chapters that are devoted to him. Once here and once we're going to look at next week. But what does he say? He cries out to God because he's thirsty. And God actually blesses his, circum- his circumstances. God, God provides this water to come out of this rock. And he drinks and his spirit is revived. And so he names that rock in Hakore, Which means nothing to you. <laughs> but what it means in Hebrew is the, the, uh, the spring of the collar. He doesn't name it God's spring. He doesn't name it the the, the spring where God provided. He names it, here's where I cried out to God. It is a memorial to me. I cried out to God. Isn't that amazing? Blessing. Success. Unbelievable turn of events. Things are working well for him. And all of it is just reinforcing his own self-absorption. This really freaked me out this week. Because when I thought about this, it really made me wonder what to pray for. Because, you know, we pray for blessing, we pray for success, and we want those things. And those are actually good things to pray about because they're good things. But what we see here and what we learn is that maybe God's actually demonstrating his kindness to you and his goodness to you by allowing hard things in your life. Maybe he's denying you success. Maybe he's withholding good things from you in order to break up the concrete foundation of your self-absorption. 
and mine. So, so maybe, maybe you're asking God this question, God, how in the world, why, why would you have let this thing happen to me? This makes no sense. Why would you have let this horrible, painfully difficult thing into my life? Or maybe you're asking yourself the question, God, why would you, why would you have prevented this thing from happening? This, this, would, this would have been a great thing. I could have helped people. I could have served you. Why would you have closed the door there? And maybe God's closing those doors and God's withholding those things in order to wake you up, to break up the self-absorption underneath it all. Because he knows if you get those things, it's just going to feed the fire underneath. I had a really hard conversation with my wife this past week. Uh, My wife, Catherine, came to me and she basically said, without going into all the details, Matt, you give all of your energy to everyone else. And I get your leftovers. And I don't feel very loved by you a lot of the time. I don't feel very prized by you. You don't really do a lot of things to make me feel special. And it was crushing. It was crushing. Because it was true. It, it, it was not, I mean, she was speaking the truth. I am not very loving to my wife a lot of the time. I'm not very thoughtful. I'm not very proactive in the way that I think for her and try to think of ways to make her feel special. So it's just a very rough week. And I was on the phone later that week with, my, with one of my mentors. And he said to me, you know, Matt, uh, God has been very gracious to you. Because what he has done is he's taken a two-by-four, as it were, and he's smacked you in the face. And that's actually very gracious of God. Because he is trying to wake you up from your prideful self-absorption. And here's what we have to see. Maybe the reason that God withholds success and blessing sometimes is to not reinforce the self-absorption. And maybe why he's smacking us is to wake us up and to shake us out of our own prideful self-absorption. Last question. So how do we get rid of it then? How do we get rid of it? Even Even if we're awakened to it, how, does, how do we undo it? How, does, how, does it get, how do we get rid of this? Well, obviously, a change in circumstances doesn't undo the self-absorption, right? Because, I mean, that's obvious. Just look at what happens to Samson. God comes, changes his circumstances, and uh, blesses him. And, you know, in 16.1, um, he hires a prostitute. So that doesn't really work for Samson. And you, likewise, are just as naive if you think, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be less self-absorbed. I'm actually going to start living for God. I'm going to change if I just get a different group of friends or if God just gives me another chance or if I can just get through the semester to get to the summer because then the summer things are going to be different. I won't have the pressure of school. You are naive if you think just a change in your circumstances is going to change you. A change in your circumstances does not change the inner selfishness. It it can't be something outside of us, external to us. It has to be something inside of us. So my guess is some of you will think, okay, I'm going to try really hard then to be less self-absorbed. I'm just going to make some resolutions. I'm going to try really hard. And I want to ask you the question, okay, are you fighting self-absorption for God's sake, for goodness sake? Or for your sake. And it's most likely for your sake. So all you're doing is just, re- you're just reinforcing the selfishness again. But some of you will say, no, I really, I really do want to serve God. I really want to fight this, this, this selfishness. And the reason why is honestly because I'm scared of hell. I'm scared that God's going to blast me. 
And again, the question is, okay, if that's your motive, if that's your reason, is are you trying to change and follow God and kill your self-absorption for God's sake or for your sake? And again, it's for your sake. Fear, if you're being good on the outside, moral, religious, going to church, serving other people, motivated by fear, you're just rearranging the selfishness. It's, it, hasn't, it hasn't really dealt with the inner self-absorption. The only way to undo the selfishness and to undo the self-absorption in our hearts is for our hearts to be shocked with pure love and grace. How does that happen, though? The only way that our hearts get shocked with love and grace is when we see the greater Samson. When, when we see the, the Samson that this Samson is pointing to ultimately. And I'm referring to the person of Jesus. Just like Samson, Jesus' own people, his own countrymen came to him and they betrayed him. And they bound him and they handed him over to their enemies. But unlike Samson, Jesus did not break the ropes and he did not kill everybody like he could have. He resisted. Why? Why would he have let them bind him and hand them over? Furthermore, why would they have let him beat him and torture him and then nail him to a cross? And at no point does he ever resist. At no point does he ever fight back. At no point does he ever do it. He, lets, he, he dies. Why? Well, he tells you why he would, he, he would let them do this in John chapter 10. Verse 18, he says this. No one takes my life from me. He says, I'm not a victim. No one's, I, I could stop this if I wanted to. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Why? Why is he giving up his life? Why is he wanting to give up his life? Because he is dying, not for him, but for you and for me. This is anti-self-absorption. I mean, if you think about it, this is, I mean, he's not giving up just a little bit of time for someone else. He's not giving up a little bit of money for someone else. He is giving up his life. He's pouring out his blood for someone else. And then you have to ask the question, for who? Who's he dying for? Surely someone that's worth it. Surely someone that's good. No. He is dying for self-absorbed narcissists like me and like you. And once you see this sort of unparalleled love and grace, this is what shocks your heart out of its self-absorption and frees you to actually start living for God and for other people. You, you are liberated from you let me explain it this way. Uh, one of the best movies that I've seen in the past six months is Crazy Stupid Love with Steve Carell, Emma Stone. And one of the characters, Jacob, is played by Ryan Gosling. So dreamy. And the Jacob character is like the typical hotshot playboy bachelor. And so every single night he goes to a bar and seduces women, and every single night he comes home with a different woman. He's just a total player, total womanizer, and uh, totally self-absorbed. He just thinks he's the man. He thinks he's the jam. And uh, on one occasion, he meets this woman, uh, Hannah, who's the Emma Stone character, and he goes home with her that night. And instead of sleeping with each other, they just end up talking the whole night. Whole night long, just sharing stories with each other up until the, you know, the, the morning, just talking. 
It's unlike any encounter he's ever had with a girl that he's met at the bar. Because she respects him, because she wants to get to know him, and she doesn't want to just be used by him, or does she, she doesn't want to use him. And so what happens is because she's so different, she treats him this way, uh, as the story unfolds, he falls in love with her. And as he falls in love with her, you can see kind of the, the spell is breaking on him because he stops, he just stops his, his womanizing lifestyle. He stops going to the bar trying to pick up girls. Uh, he, he doesn't walk with the same swagger that he did before. He, he, he's brought down to earth. He, he becomes more whole, more human, and much more likable. He, he's starting to actually live for something else other than him. And what we see with this story is that love is the antidote to self-absorption. Now, if that sort of, if the love of a human undoes the self-absorption in him at that level, imagine how radically different we would be if we actually experienced and knew the love of God, who is a relentless, aggressive lover of people like us that are messy and obstinate and don't want anything to do with him a lot of the time, what, what would be different about us? Let me explain and then I'll be done. If we really experienced this type of love and grace and, and it shocked our heart to the depths of its being, then what would happen if, if someone were to be in a conversation with you, you wouldn't have to always one-up them in conversation. You could actually just let the story or just let the conversation be about them. You could be secure enough in the gospel to just let it be about them. If someone hurts you, if someone criticizes you, you you no longer have to settle the score. You no longer have to get even. Because you're secure enough in the gospel, you can actually take it. Take it. And forgive them. Forgive and love the very person that just wounded you. You know, if, you, if, you, if you've been shocked by the grace of the gospel, then you no longer have to use people for your own selfish gains, which is miserable, by the way. You can actually lay down your resources and your life and your time to serve and love other people. You're freed up to do that now. The, the, the good news of the gospel is not just that you're forgiven, as glorious as that is. The good news of the gospel is not just that you're forgiven, but that you are freed from you. You are freed from you. And I don't know about you, but that's really good news. So will you embrace it? Will you embrace the gospel by faith? And that's the invitation tonight, as always. Let me pray. Father, we would ask that you would give us faith to be open-handed and desperate and to fall on you and to embrace you and to receive you. And I pray, Father, by your grace, would you shock our hearts with, with the type of love and mercy that you have held out for us in the gospel. And Father, I pray that it would rattle us to the depths of our core, that we would, we would say, we are finally free to no longer live for ourselves, But we are free to live for you, to live our life for the benefit of other people, to be freed from the prison of our own self-absorption where it is miserable and lonely to be freed to joy and to worship and to gratitude and to love and to service. Father, that is our prayer, and we can't do that apart from your enabling grace. Would you do that in my heart? Because you know I need it. And would you do it in the hearts of these folks here too? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.